we talk about the promise of life. I, lo- I love this like smaller group because we can just like, I mean, it's like, hey, what do you think? Hey, you like it? I like it. Uh, it's kind of like unofficial. If you're visiting for the first time, you know, we, 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 we're a big family here. We like community. We like being, have fun and hang out together here. Um, but last week we talked about the promise of life and we talked about the resurrection of Jesus and, and how that came about. And, um, but when we start following the chronological events of what happens in scripture, um, right after the resurrection of Jesus, we, we could spend countless hours on the different scenarios that took place during that moment. You know, you had, you had him appearing to Mary, you have him appearing to his disciples where the Bible says he breathed the Holy Spirit into them. He appears to Thomas where Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can see or touch. Um, then he appears to his seven disciples. This is a big one because it's where he eats with them. He cooks for the disciples. You know what that means? Let me tell you why that's exciting. It's because he had a glorified body. That means who likes to eat around here, right? You know where I'm going with this, Styles. That means that when we get to heaven, we get to eat. That's what that means. That's how quickly I broke it down to you. You like that? Wisdom 101. That's what I went to school for. Um, so we get to eat in heaven. Take that. If you take anything from this, dude, this is killing me. Um, we see the, the, the interaction with Peter. Peter, do you love me? And then we jump into the book of Acts, and we see that the promise of the Holy Spirit, you know, where he says, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus ascends to heaven. Um, Matthias replaces Judas as the 12th disciple. Then the Holy Spirit actually comes. And we're going to get into the Holy Spirit next month. I don't want to skip through this. The whole month of May, we're going to spend talking about the Holy Spirit and what that experience was like, okay? But Peter preaches the sermon after that where 3,000 people get their lives to Christ. It was a powerful time. All these events happen back to back to back. Four chapters of Scripture, two different books, and chronologically leading us to the place where we want to be at today. It's when the birth of the New Testament church happens. You want to know why we gather here today? Why we have a church service? What's the scenario here? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we come together on Sundays? Why does this place look like this? It's all based on what happened. And that verse 42 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts begins explaining to us how the believers form a community of people that came together to begin what we call today the church after that sermon Peter preached. We see the foundation of what we all long for as people when we come together to become the church of Christ here in this world. And today we want to break down this text because it's super practical. I want you to realize with me today, what's up? You're good? I thought you were saying something to me. Jeez, I'm hearing stuff up here. Maybe it's the popping with my mic. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, It's the Holy Spirit. Ah, uh, geez. All right, don't throw me off here. I got to stay in your coach. Um, it's, it's practical. And, and to see the church in this sense that we're going to be looking at today. All right, I'm, I'm, you're going to have to give me a handheld. I'll take a handheld because I can't do it. Huh? What's that? Oh, I'm beef. <laughs> Crystal, you're joking back there. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you're telling me some insightful thing. There it is. 
Yeah. The podcast is not going to understand what happened. <clears throat> so we, we see this community begin to come together after the resurrection of Jesus. And the more I read the text and the more I looked at how it all developed and how it all laid out, it became very simple and practical in how they did church together. It, church is a lot easier than you may think it is. It's a lot more simpler, if that's even a word, than you may think it is. We have definitely overcomplicated the church. That's not a shot, okay? I'm just saying that the more I read the text and how the New Testament church came together after this moment and the things that they put in place and the things that they prioritized as people were so much more basic and practical than what we've come to today, you know? Now, let, let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. This is going to be good. Of course, says the guy speaking it, right? I'm a little bit biased. Um, we're going to read just verse 42 to 47. <clears throat> and it says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. That right there is it. Okay? We keep going. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Everything. They sold their property and possessions and shared their money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Could it really be this simple? Is it really this practical? What an amazing practical layout of the church we see here. The passage gives us a general overview of the things that gave the New Testament church the ability to experience God's miraculous power and consistent growth as people. And the reality is that these things were, that they were doing, they were quite plain and practical. Now, we could get into the debt of a lot of the things that they were doing, and we're going to jump into that in just a few moments. But many churches today desire the pattern of the New Testament church in hopes of experiencing that same power, that same growth, that same effectiveness they had. But I do believe that we have become our biggest obstacle to it all. With our personal wants and how we want things, how we want to see things laid out in that pursuit of power, growth, and effectiveness, we have gotten in the way by adding things to it that never meant to be there. Hmm. We have overcomplicated the whole idea. Sadly, we have overcomplicated the whole idea. I love me meeting in this gym, right? We use words like altar and, you know, the play. And, and think about it. We're in a gym praising God. I feel his presence. I'm, I'm worshiping God. I'm loving it. And you see, is it that real? Is it that practical? Yes, it is that practical. It is that simple. We're going to get it. I'm super, I'm super excited about this. You could tell, right? Like, you know, in, 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 
every large church or successful church that you know about had a small beginning. The largest church in America, in North American history, meeting over 40 locations, live church, 12 different states, started in a two-car garage with folding chairs. They did, they, they, the guy says, the pastor says that they had a full-time OPTF, overhead projector transparency flipper. <laughs> All right? That's how simple it was. They had a guy, you guys remember, come on. If you're, if you're young in the room, I get it. I, I, you know, I remember those projectors, okay? It reminds me of the way my dad started the church. I grew up into a church plant. I was born into it. It was folding, 20 folding chairs in my dad's garage. And he, when my mom would sing, he would preach, and me and my brother sat in the front row with no one behind us. I'm a little baby. I can barely keep my head up. You know, I'm just like. <laughs> but that's how it started. It was that simple. It was impactful for my life forever. And I always share this because I remember when the first drunk person showed up and sat in the back. My dad's first member. I mean, we were the first members technically, right? But, you know, that's how we overcomplicated things. See, that's what I'm talking about. This guy shows up and sits in the back. It didn't stop my mom. It didn't stop my dad. They went through it. And then the next person shows up from the neighborhood. And the next person shows up from the neighborhood. And the next person shows up from the neighborhood. Literally, my dad was 22 years old. They get married, move into the town, and take a pulpit and 20 folding chairs from the church that we're a part of. And they start their ministry as newlyweds. You're like, that doesn't happen anymore. Newlyweds need their time to spend together. And, you know, they need to at least give themselves three years before they do anything like that. That's too much for a couple, right? We have overcomplicated it. What we must understand is that the church is a perfect plan set forth by God in order for him to accomplish his will in people. From the book of Acts, as well as different passages throughout the New Testament, we gain insight into the characteristics of what a New Testament church looks like. These churches didn't have buildings, offices, phone numbers, pay staff, logos, websites, coffee, instruments, lights, hey, sermon series. So how did people get saved? If none of these things existed... It was just a group of people excited about Jesus. People that understood that God wasn't just someone who did something for them. That it was way more than that. Many of us actually say today that we wouldn't attend a church unless it had these things. Like we're shopping for a shirt or something like that. And guys, this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but, but, but take, take peace in the fact that you're sitting in a gym. You know, we have told ourselves that if a church doesn't have this, this, and that, it's not for me and my family. And we make those statements. Can we agree that in essence, we have missed the mark just a little bit? You don't have to agree with me fully, but necessarily, it's not like we've taken it too far, but can we agree that we have turned churches and looked at them from a consumer angle? instead of a complementation piece of what do I bring to it? 
You were brought into this place to consume, but you were also brought into this place to contribute. That's what a church is. Christopher Wright said it like this. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but he has a church for his mission in the world. In other words, the mission of God for this world does not revolve around the building and the lights and all the different things you see and the capabilities. Instead, it is one of the many tools he uses to accomplish his mission in the world. It's, like, it's a little bit different from what we're used to hearing or seeing. Our goal as a church should be to ask ourselves, how do we fit and equip to, are we equipped to accomplish the mission set forth by God? Do we fit? Are we capable? Are we accomplishing what God set us out to do? The church cannot only be made out of consumers. You know why? Because it would disappear. It goes against the entire mission and the creative process of spreading the kingdom of God. You can't just sit and consume and consume for me, for me, for me. The church would literally disappear if that was our mindset. If all of us sat here today and said, you know what, I'm not preaching. I just want to consume. It would disappear. We would not have a service. If people didn't get up here and sing and volunteer and did these things. Because we have to change this idea that church is, I'm a consumer. My family needs to be catered to when I come to a church. We come to a church to worship God. That's why we can do it anywhere. Man, this sounds like one of those sermons I used to hear when I was a kid. I sit in the front row like, oh, God, why is he spitting at me? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> hey, you're far enough back. Oh, geez. <laughs> we, we read four main things in that first, re, that first verse that we read. It says, it says number one, they, they, they focus on the apostles' teaching. Okay? They were a church center on the word of God, believing that that book could, could have nothing added to it, nothing taken away from it. There isn't a misunderstanding. It is what it says it is. We follow it completely. That word infallible, there's no mistake found in it. It's, it's true and true. We follow it 100% even when it hurts. They also, follow, they also fellowship, it says. They were unified in love and purpose. They were a relational, relationship-building church. Not people that were just into themselves. No, they realized that this meant getting out of our comfort zone and dealing with other people. They broke bread together. They enjoy each other's companies and were caring and sharing community. They were people of gratitude and hospitality with one another. We were just talking to a couple that, that's going through a procedure, and we're all like, the whole church is like, bring your kids. I'll take them for a few hours. Take a break. Let us help you. We're a family. It was about that. It was that, that knit, close group of people that help one another. And they pray together. They recognize that their source of their intimacy with God. We, we all want to spend eternity with God, but we don't want to spend any time with him now. Realizing that their source of their relationship with God was their prayer to God. These practices were plain and practical, but extremely effective. 
You're saying, Moises, so we should, we should just do that. No. I say we use that as our core principles of what we do. We let that be the base of what we do. And then branch out with creativity to accomplish the rest, but not losing the concept of our base. God says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Obviously, if our load is too heavy, then we're carrying something we're not meant to carry. I've always was thought, if you're carrying the load, it's not what breaks you down, it's the way you're carrying it. So if you're sitting here today overwhelmed by church, then you're doing church wrong. If you're overwhelmed by the calling of God over your life, you're doing church wrong. You're not answering it correctly. It's not the load, it's the way you're carrying it. Do we agree God is perfect? He knows what you need even more than you do. So when I get stressed out, I get bogged down, it's me. I'm the one getting in the way. I'm okay with that. There's a significant result that the church saw from acting this way. They saw benefit after benefit, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. Number one, they saw signs and wonders. Verse 43 says, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, it said. Signs and wonders are one of the most powerful tools we have. All right, you know why? Because if anyone ever questions me about my faith, they cannot argue my testimony. The experiences I have had with God, you could count me as crazy, but are the experiences I have had with God. I can say one time I was hurting for this, I talked to God and he did that. The person standing across from me is either gonna believe me or not believe me, but it is my testimony. It is why that person may need to hear at that moment. No one can take that away from us. What God has done in our lives is powerful enough to impact other people. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 says, if anyone asks you your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. We are called to be, to be ready for whatever, to carry those things. Have you ever thought that people are looking for answers nowadays? That there's a huge need for the supernatural? Can we agree? That's not something Christianity made up. No, it's within the DNA of humanity. There are people out there seeking supernatural experiences in all the wrong ways. You see it. They're driven to it. And we have the answers, but we won't say anything because they may not believe us. So they seek it in other things. They're touching screens. and I mean, there are all kinds of ways, and I don't want to get into the middle of that. But I mean, Honestly, sometimes we tend to downplay the things that have taken place in our lives. Like it happens and we forget about it so quickly. We get caught up in what is missing instead of what we have or what God has done in our lives. Have you ever thought that the miracles that take place in your life are twofold? They're for your benefit, but also for the benefit of other people? We can't miss that. This is extremely important. Because purpose is one of those things that if you don't know what it is, you'll misuse it every time. Our goal is to turn seekers into saints, consumers into contributors, turn members into ministers, to turn audiences into armies for God. That's what we're called to do. 
all of us, not just me up here with the mic, all of us. There is a need for the supernatural in this way, and you have the news for it. And you have the supernatural. Are you using it for that purpose? Are you stepping into the gap and saying, hey, I know what you need, and I can tell you about it because I've experienced it before. You don't need to be a scholar on the word of God to talk to somebody about the experiences that you have personally had with God. It, they are your experiences. You know them more than anybody else, how they happened, how it went down, where you couldn't believe what was taking place. This is the next thing they're experiencing. They experience community and generosity. It's funny because when we talk about the word community and we talk about the word generosity are two words that instantly we think about ourselves. We think, where's my community and who's going to be generous to me? They're selfish concepts. Verse 44, it says, and all the believers met together in one place and share everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. God created people to function and thrive in community environments, in right relationship with one another. You may say, Moises, I'm an introvert. My Enneagram is one and two and three and four, whatever it is. I don't have time, Moises. I can't do it. I can't do it. I love the way this pastor puts it because he says, you have time for what you make time for, right? You have time for what matters most to you. We all have 24 hours in the day. You have it. I have it. And we're spending it on something. These people practice selfless generosity by sharing their possessions and time, taking care of one another. The actions, their actions show gratitude and love that came first from God. He said, I don't have the resources or the time, Moises. I just don't. I got to go to work. And I'm just saying you have the resources of the time and they're going somewhere. That's all I'm saying. One of the things I learned in the corporate world very early on is a CEO sat across from me and said, what is the most valuable thing you have? I can remember this experience. I was sitting in the conference room, and I started thinking about my wife. I started thinking about my house. I started thinking about my family. I started thinking about all the things. And he said, your time. Your time is the most valuable thing you have. You can't make any more of it. You can't buy any more of it. There isn't more out there to get. No, your time is the most valuable thing you have because you can't do anything else. You can't multiply it. It is what it is. It's the most valuable possession we own. And I'm not going to sit here this morning and attack your habits and put statistics on how much time you spend on Facebook and Instagram. All I'm saying is we all have time and resources that are being spent on something. So my question to you is, what is the return on that investment? What is the return on that investment? We're all spending it, but what are you getting out of it? Is it benefiting you and your family? Is it benefiting your relationship with God? You're spending your time and resources on something. Are you who is benefiting from it? What is the return on that investment you're putting in? People are shocked when I tell them I live in Mint Hill and I pastor in Waxhaw. You drive 35 minutes to church? When are you guys moving? 
That's crazy. How are you going to survive? I'm like, what is going on here? It's 35 minutes to church to do something I'm called to do, that my purpose calls me to. Jesus said in John 6, 27, uh, 26 to 27, it says, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I'm, I'm full of God. It's not what he's done for me. It's just that I'm bursting. I proclaim his name because I've had my fill. And I want other people to experience that. That's why I drive and go and work, because it's, it's a calling thing. It's a purpose thing. The early Jerusalem church experienced a sense of community and purpose that had been experienced by only a few people on earth. We get so caught up in our circumstances and use it as excuses to make our lives be whatever they are. You hear countless people, especially young people, always set that thing up front. Once I graduate, once I get the job, once my kids leave the house, once there's always this play with circumstances. You cannot let circumstances drive how you live your life. Because if you behave that way now, the circumstances ain't going to do anything. If you're spending your resources and your time doing things a certain way, getting the right job isn't going to make it better. You'll just fill the slot with something else. It is the reality that we all have to deal with. It isn't going to be some graduation that's going to change your life. It isn't going to be when your kids end up in college and retirement starts that's going to change everything for you. Then I'll devote my life to the Lord and what he's called me to do. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If he's calling you to this season, he's calling you now. You're not following him because of the signs and wonders that you've seen. It's because you've had your loaves and you've had your fill. You're ready. Man. Hmm. Like, I'm just not passionate enough. <laughs> right? <laughs> we all laugh, but we hear it all the time. It's just not my passion. That's just not what I'm passionate about. And what, what does how we feel have anything to do with who we're serving? How, how are we, how, when did we turn this into some kind of like, God loves me. He would never make me do something like that. We use this word passion as some, son of, some sort of ex, emotional excitement. Like the meaning of it, it's a, it, the meaning of passion means suffering. That's what it means. Yeah, I'm not passionate. That's not an emotional excitement meaning. It means suffering. Dr. Martin Luther King said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Community and generosity. Number three, and I'm rolling here. Guys, I'm sorry. I'm like super into this. <laughs> Growth and discipleship. Growth and discipleship is what they experience. Number 47, it says, 
Although while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. As a result of their devotion to Christ and to one another, God honored them with spiritual and numerical numbers and growth. People were coming to know Jesus, growing in their faith, and becoming active participants of the church. They were actively and effectively fulfilling the great commission of God, which was to go out and make disciples. We have turned this into some sort of calling thing. Moises, that's your job. That's what we pay you. I, I brought my tithe, man. I go to work Monday. What do you do on Mondays? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, but it's true, right? <laughs> they do say pastors don't work. I have a problem with that statement. <laughs> but again, I'm, bi I'm biased, right? You know, we, we have become so, we, we, want, we want the results without putting in the work of it, right? We, we want the praise without having to put in any work. Growth and discipleship opportunities come our way. And if you want, it's what you do with those opportunities that actually make a difference in your life, you know? God is not going to send somebody your way if you're not going to be able to do anything with it. The critical question to ask ourselves today is if you know we're making a difference or not, if our church moved out of the neighborhood, would anyone care? In fact, I'll take it a step further. If you moved out of your neighborhood, would anyone care or anyone miss you? What, what impact would you make? Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a bat cave kind of guy. Both of my cars go in the garage. I open that thing up and go in there, and my neighbors don't see me. All right? But I need to be better at that. I need to be better at that. Rosie knows. She's like, why don't you talk to people? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Keep walking. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's weird because I only had one friend growing up in middle school and another one in high school. We moved all the time. I, I don't, you're like, what in the world? God, you want me to be a pastor of people? You know, because I'm not that guy. I, you know, or I wasn't. It's one thing to mean something to those who belong to the church, but it's another challenge to mean something to those who don't. You know, in Luke chapter 10, I love this story, and I'm kind of going to wrap things up just talking about this story real quick. Luke chapter 10, one of the teachers of religious law asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him and says, what does the law of Moses say? All right, and this is Luke chapter 10. I'm just going to paraphrase kind of the, the whole thing. The man answered, you, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. And Jesus says, that is right. Do that, and you will live. And, but the guy wanted to justify himself, and he asked the question back, and he said, who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus goes on to tell the story about a man who was beaten and robbed, Right? And how three familiar figures happened to travel along the side road while he was laying there. And the first one was a priest who was like top of the food chain for religious activity and caring. 
The next one was a Levite, which was a step below the priest, right? And both entrusted with worship and keeping the traditions, traditions of Israel alive, both passed the injured man without even saying a word to him and actually avoided him. It's insane how the people who are closest to the resource are the ones that have become the most indifferent. I, I, I've said it before, but our hearts are growing cold because of the evil that we're experiencing, friends. We have to figure out a way. Indifferent people can't make a difference. You are not just different to be different. You are different to make a difference. I'm this unique individual for some reason. I'm wonderfully complex for a reason. That's not a shot. In some cases, it is. My wife will tell you. In some cases, it is. But for what God wants to do, he's purposeful and amazing at what he's doing. Indifferent people don't make a difference. You are different to make a difference. God is calling you to that season, to that field. The third person comes to this helpless man and says, He's identified as a Samaritan, and, and, and they, they practice a version of Judaism, but it wasn't expected of him to do anything. No love was expected from this Samaritan to come across for this man. But as the story continues, he stops, gets off his donkey, and does what he can to help the man. Takes him to the nearest inn where he, 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 he works with his wounds and, 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 and gives him long-term care. And you know what he did? He paid out of it from his pocket. So the man had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, with hopes of getting out of the personal responsibility of what he had to do in the moment. And Jesus uses this entire story to ask the man another question. Which of these would you say was a neighbor to the man? The answer was obvious. Obviously the one who showed mercy, the one who did something. Jesus says to him, now go and do likewise. You know, people in Jesus' day look for ways to limit their involvement ethically and morally, always looking for definitions of that word neighbor to kind of buy themselves out of constantly reducing the meaning so, so that they didn't have to deal with the responsibility of loving other people. And we do the same thing. We find ways to exclude ourselves from the situations right in front of our faces. Like, we're not the ones called to this. We're not the ones dealing with this moment. That's why there's people in the community that deal with these things. My job is to go to my five, eight to five job, give my tithe, and attend church faithfully. There's nothing wrong with that. But by the end of the story, Jesus turns the question inside out. Who is my neighbor now becomes what kind of neighbor will I be? Helping us to see the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, was never about a location. It was never about my neighborhood. It was about the specific actions that I would be willing to take as people when dealing with other folks and their issues what started as a discussion about them and the people around them became a, a, a discussion about how they were willing to live and act and what type of person will they become. 
Our identity is that we're beloved by God. Then our character, our deepest impulse should tell us that there's no other way, that other people around us need us, that there's a reason why we're there. If you really want to increase attendance and, and increase the things that God is doing, it all starts with us realizing in the premises that we are loved by God. I would tell my young adults all the time, they would always talk about, I need to find the right one. I'm looking for the right one. I'm always looking for the right one. And I would say to them, have you tried to become the right one for someone else? Instead of spending your time trying to find the right one, use that time to become the right one. We spend our time becoming consumers, trying to find the right fit. Have you become the right fit? Are you the right person? Would others find hope in interacting with you? Are we the, the safe haven where people could come to and truly find community and fellowship and really find a place where they could identify with someone and say, man, you really get this. You have really went through it. You have really overcome this. God has really been on your side. Tell me more. Don't be indifferent. We're all investing our time and resources in something. We shouldn't just stop when our lives are good and forget about the cares of other people. Remember where God brought you from. I got a call at 10.30 the other night. Randomly, a guy offering me a job. I was very well paid. And I'm sitting there on the phone like, what? What's this about? I know you're pastoring a church, but, you know, I was wondering if you would be willing to do this. I'm like, no. No. God has called me to this. I have to do this. I'm not chasing finances. If I was chasing finances, I would be doing something completely different. I'm going to jump out on a limb and say this. There's only two things we can do here on earth that we can't do in heaven. That sin and witness to other people. Which one do you think God is keeping you here for? Church is simple and practical, and I'm sorry if your experience has been otherwise, because it has been with me too. But it's purposeful and much needed, and we are the hope that this city and this community needs. You are the people being called to this moment. You're saying, really, Moises? Wax on North Carolina? Yes. Really. There's 22,000 people. Are you doing anything? You know, I don't, I don't want this to sound harsh, but you have the cure. If I was really sick and you were standing in front of me and you had the cure for my life and you didn't do anything or, or, or give it to me, I would just be standing here. Jesus said, it's not about the signs and wonders that you experienced. It's because you ate your loaf and had your fill. You have it. You have the cure that the people around you need. You're like, I can't think past my need personally. Well, you're going to have to because God's got that under control. But he's also called you to the people. You have the cure. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Bow your heads and close your eyes. <laughs>
Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray for all of us in the room. Let this be a message of encouragement, God. As we step into this season of what you've called us to do, as some of us in the room try to rectify our lives with you, trying to make things right, we have all had experiences that if we were to share on the mic, Lord, the many things that you have done for us, we would spend here all day, Lord, counting back and forth of all the things that you've done and how good you have been to all of us. God, would you give us your heart and your mind and your eyes and your ears and your mouth? So we could speak about you. We could see like you would see. We could hear things like you would hear, God. Think, feel like you would feel, God. If there are hearts around the room that have been hardened by past experiences, Lord, I pray for your spirit to step in into this moment and make those hearts soft again, tender to your presence, willing to share. God, I believe that there is purpose in the room and that you have called us to this moment. So I would just pray for you to do something amazing in each and every life here, God. I pray that your purpose and your calling will come alive in this season, in this community, so that through the efforts of many, we could do amazing things for your kingdom. God, we're not consumers only. We're contrib contributors to your kingdom, God. And right now, Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us, help us, Lord, to know that there are priorities that you've put in place for us to follow, God. And we should follow those according to your will. Thank you for everyone who's here, who came out, God. We pray that your will be done in all of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray all this. Amen. Amen. Give, give, give a hand to God this morning. <clears throat>